0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. In 2015, Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy made headlines for his Second Chance Society. The reform measures included decreasing penalties for simple drug offenses and improving the process behind parole hearings and pardons to help nonviolent offenders get back to living on the outside. The reforms easily won bipartisan support. Not so this year when Second Chance 2.0 came out before lawmakers. This time, the proposals appeared too controversial. Today, where we live, we look back on the legislation that the governor and the Democratic-led General Assembly couldn't agree on. Meanwhile, it's not just state lawmakers who are thinking about making it easier for ex-offenders to transition back into society. We'll check in with cities like New Haven and Bridgeport to learn about re-entry initiatives there. And later in the hour, we'll hear why some business owners have been open to hiring people with prison records. You can join the conversation, 860 275 7266 Comment on our website, WMPR.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we Live. First off, we want to find out more about why Second Chance 2.0 failed, and could it come up again in the upcoming legislative session? In studio to help us answer that question is Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, a reporter for Connecticut Mirror at ctmirror.org. Always good to have you with us, Jackie. Thanks for having me. So we know that Second Chance 2.0 wasn't as successful as that first package of reforms. What was Governor Malloy specifically asking for in that legislation?
1: So there were really two components. The first component was bail reform, so essentially eliminating bail for most minor offenses. So someone sitting in jail wouldn't it be sitting there just because they couldn't afford, you know, the $200 to get out um, for low-level offenses. After that failed to pass this last legislative session or earlier this year, um, the governor began – the governor's office, rather, began sending out daily emails to reporters of how many people were sitting in jail for low-level offenses simply because they couldn't afford to post bail. Um, It was about 350 on any given day. So that was the first component. And then the second component was raising the age of who is exactly considered a juvenile and handled in the juvenile justice system. And Currently, those who commit offenses under age 18 are handled in the juvenile justice system. Um, But for more serious offenses, they are automatically transferred to the adult court. So homicides are automatically routed to the adult system, as well as courts have the authority, judges rather, have the authority to um, consider whether or not a case should be sent over to the adult system and so the governor really was proposing expanding that reach to for 18, 19 and 20 year olds um and and behind that point is that 3 quarters of those who are arrested are charged the most serious defense that they're charged with are misdemeanors so by and large those who are ending up in the adult criminal justice system at age 18, 19 and 20 are for misdemeanors so they're not those large um you know we're not talking about homicides here those would still be in the adult system under this Raise the Age proposal, as well as there was um, this initiative to make sure that they are treated appropriately once they are in the juvenile justice system so that, um, you know, there's sort of this idea behind um, rehabilitation versus punishment and really shield them from having, for lack of a better metaphor, a scarlet letter for the mm-hmm. rest of their life for that arrest record will live on forever, because no matter what the outcome of that arrest is and if whether or not they're adjudicated, you know, that online arrest lives on forever.
0: And um, that idea to uh, raise the age of adult criminal responsibility, that really
1: came from what Europe is doing, right? Right. So Germany, in post-World War II era, they raised the age... Um, so that they captured more young uh, some more of these adolescents into their system, and they actually um include homicide offenses in their juvenile justice system, so like something like ninety percent of those who are charged with murder, or, you know various uh, more serious offenses are still handled in their juvenile justice system, so that's not what was being proposed here in any way um the Netherlands also more recently. Have has shifted to a, a larger age, and then also in other states and throughout the U.S. have also been um, pushing for this. Illinois and Vermont have been considering this. That not, neither of those states has it passed yet, but it is something that is um, you know the, the discussion is starting to 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 be raised. I wanted to point out we did reach out
0: to Governor Malloy's administration to come on to talk about, again, second chance, was which was a very big part of this last legislative session. Um, again, two of those measures or that legislation actually failed. And we wanted to find out, you know, what are the chances of it being brought up again in the upcoming session? I'm talking with uh, Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror at CT Mirror. Dot org. And um, when we talk about how the legislation failed, we have a clip now uh, when uh, Governor Malloy was speaking to reporters just in June, and he actually blamed the failure of the Second Chance 2.0 legislation on the timing of the bill.
2: If this had not been an election year, uh, we would have passed this legislation. I don't agree
0: that that's a good excuse, but I understand it. So he's saying um, all the seats are up for uh, re-election uh, this November, and because of that, some lawmakers didn't want to look like they were being soft on crime if they were to support
1: 2.0? I think that's the perfect way to put it. You know, you have um, a, a state senate that um, very well could shift over to the Republicans being in the majority. Um, you have a Democratic governor and a Democratic House and Democratic Senate who couldn't get together and, and pass this and shepherd it through. So that makes you wonder how much power are are the the republicans holding in this debate and and it's it's important to mention that criminal justice reform by and large has been um sort of a bipartisan issue depending on and tweaks a little bit along the way but there has been republican support for some reforms um that said no one wants to be seen as soft on crime and i think this idea of capturing more people into the juvenile justice system um, it might be perceived that way um, So you saw during the – as the days wind down in the legislative session that Republicans really were trying to be um, negotiating with the Republicans to try to get this across the the finish line.
0: Um, So we know that – you said it wasn't as palatable to have – to think about 18- to 20-year-olds in the juvenile uh, justice system. Weren't there also concerns during the session about, okay, well, if we were to do this for uh, low-level crime – you know the just the dynamic and the logistics of of how you would um deal with these cases in the the court system um if people needed to be jailed where would you be putting them do you want to have um these 18 to 21 year olds in you know with the the older adult population what's where's the facility for them
1: if they're going to be considered juveniles right so there's I- there's a difference between, you know, theoretically doing something and, and how practical it is. So just something as simple as, um, you know, for domestic violence, for example, having intimate partner violence now included in the juvenile justice system, do you want a group therapy where the the – People range from age 14 to 20 in in one group therapy. Um, I don't think anyone was suggesting that, but there are sort of these practical things that you have to think and how that plays out, as well as, um, you know, there's immediate protections or near-immediate protections for people who who are victims of intimate family violence um, and domestic violence, of getting a temporary restraining order there before a judge, you know, within... 24 hours versus in the juvenile justice system. It could take weeks before you get before a system. Um, and just trying to figure out how just the practical nature of moving these offenses over to the juvenile justice system is something that is, is trying to be worked out. And, and there is support among I, – I heard last week that there was some support among getting this done. It's just they want to make sure all the protections that have been put in place on the adult side transfer over to the juvenile side.
0: We heard a lot about compromise this past legislative session. So if, um, you know, allowing 18 to 20-year-olds uh, to be considered juvenile offenders, if that wasn't palatable, again, that was dropped. But what happened with the bail reform initiative?
1: The bail reform initiative, so um, Raise the Age was dropped as as the legislature was preparing to come back into session. And um, the, the goal was to get enough support for the bail reform the votes just weren't there um there was a caucus all day for for both of them and then they came out and said you know it's just not happening this year um not much explanation given of sort of what happened um that doesn't mean it's not going to ha- it's not going to be proposed next year you know th- i've seen bill Several bills, year after year, come up, and it you know third year's the charm or fourth year's the charm. So I think just because something didn't happen in the first year doesn't mean it's over. Next year's not an election year, so mm-hmm. um, there is still there is still a chance for it.
0: But there were real consequences to Second Chance 2.0 not being passed. That includes uh, another 15 to $20 million that had to be cut from that budget. Um, we know that House Minority Leader Themis Clardis was one of the unhappy ones. Uh, here she is in June talking about the relationship between, again, Second Chance 2.0 and fiscal responsibility. I've heard some of the governor's spokespeople in the past few weeks mention, well, it would leave a $15 million hole if we don't pass this. Well, first of all, shame on you for building it in when you have no idea if this is going to pass. But more importantly, all of a sudden you've become fiscally responsible with public safety. That's where you decide you want to save money when you're cutting social services, when you're cutting nonprofits, when you're cutting uh, disabled population money. And now you want to put people on the street that should be in jail? So, like you know, a lot of uh, um you know anger that uh, because they didn't want to feel comfortable passing this that they now had to move those cuts on to other services, but that would have happened anyway,
1: right, so the fifteen million that what that you mentioned is from the estimated savings from closing a jail, so the by not having so many people in incarcerated because of low level offenses um the it was estimated that maybe that would reduce the inmate population. Um, the Office of Fiscal Analysis, the nonpartisan or the legislature's nonpartisan fiscal arm, they um, reported that that alone reform would not necessarily close a jail, but it was a piece of the puzzle to getting the the incarceration rate down. So it was a, a piece, but it wasn't the only piece. Um, it is important to mention, too, to Demis's later point, Of you know, you're cutting everywhere else, um, those cuts do include many, many reentry services. Um, The Department of Correction just last week or sorry, two weeks ago rather um, announced that they're cutting 8.5 million from non residential programs um, for reentry for people who are leaving. On the judicial side, to divert people from even ending up incarcerated, they had to cut 77 million dollars. Most of that fell on. Personnel, so court services, but 24 million of that fell on services that they contract with. So things like, you know, 10 private providers who provide detox and substance abuse treatment in the community were cut by 123 beds. That's 40% of the beds that the judicial branch provides to hopefully divert them from ever ending up in prison in the first place and get them out of the criminal justice system. So um, if you're talking about reform, you can't just see it in isolation. You have to also see Um, the cuts elsewhere in the system.
0: Uh, Do you think, we keep hearing that the deficit's only going to get worse in the coming uh, couple of fiscal years. I mean, because of um, the cuts that had to be made with this legislation not passing this session, will that be enough of a push to possibly see that reform happen next session?
1: There's definitely um, some troubled fiscal waters ahead. Um, when the budget was passed, the Office of Fiscal Analysis estimated a $1.3 billion deficit for the fiscal year. That begins July 1, 2017. Um, yeah, reducing the MA population definitely saves money. There's no doubt about it. Um, it so there is sort of this this money generator that comes from reducing the M.A. population. So it's a, you know, it's it's good for society, it's good for or um, you can argue it's good for society, you can argue it'll also save money. So there's there I think that will be will help push it through.
0: I've been speaking to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, again a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror at ctmirror.org. Thanks a lot for your analysis. Absolutely. Today, where we live, we're talking about criminal justice reform in Connecticut. Coming up, we're going to find out more about reentry initiatives in our cities. And we're going to hear from someone who knows a little bit about what it's like to be in prison. That's Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannum. That's after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalpa Cities often bear the burden of helping ex-inmates restart their lives. Some leaders in those communities have complained that they're the ones who need more resources from the state to help ex-offenders reintegrate many who show up in cities just hours after leaving prison. That's something former New Haven Mayor John De Stefano often talked about during his long tenure, which included prisoner reentry initiatives. Today, Where We Live, we look at what the city of New Haven is doing today to help ex-cons. Recently under Mayor Tony Harp, the Elm City hired a project coordinator to run a reentry program with a Second Chance grant. Uh, Joining us now from uh, the studios of Yale University is Earl Bloodworth. Earl, thanks for coming on Where We Live.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us about your job. Why did you take it?
3: Well, um, I am a resident of the city of New Haven, and I was very aware of the issues that has. Um, just last year I was working with the African American Affairs Commission um, in Hartford at the General Assembly and re-entry as well as um, racial profiling and the school to prison pipeline were some issues that were being addressed and, and reviewed uh, with the African American Affairs Commission and as well as a couple of the other commissions that were in Hartford at the time. So I, I got keenly aware and attuned to to the issue and became very passionate about it. Um, And when the opportunity presented itself for for this position, I did apply and uh, was blessed to uh, receive the opportunity to work with this population in the city of Haven and its progressive um, reform for this population coming back to the community so we can make them successful. So, I mean, I believe everybody deserves a second chance.
0: And Earl, I read that you're actually a native of New Haven. So, yes. you know, coming up through the school system, you know, people that you that you know from, um, you know, living in New Haven. I mean, what are what are you seeing in neighborhoods? Are, are people when they're coming home um, getting enough of those services to help them restart their lives?
3: I, I mean, there there are a number of services, but there, I mean, there's still a lot of work. And just as you were talking about in, in your previous interview and analysis, it's. With the current budget crisis uh, in the the state of Connecticut, um, the services are are limited and we're definitely having to be more efficient in in how you address the issues for this particular population. I mean, um, when you think about this particular population and and, and these uh, men and women coming out of prison, um, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. So it's not just as simple as, you know, Let's get them some housing, let's get them a, a job and employment. Um, I mean many of these people have traumatic issues that have not been dealt with. So you're also talking about therapy, um, cognitive, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy so that um, you can help them with uh, or build in better coping skills and, and uh, less antisocial tendencies so, it's a large network that's required uh, to assist this particular population and the City of New Haven has um, Been working with multiple agencies in particular with this grant It was a collaborative grant between the City of New Haven and three uh, city resource agencies uh, Easterfield Goodwill uh, Project more and the Community Action Agency of New Haven so um, For lack of a better term it does it does take the village to assist and uh, this particular population and just overall we, we can only do this together not working in silos so
0: um Earl, we had, I had mentioned in the intro, um, we often heard uh, former uh, New Haven Mayor John DiStefano talking about you know, the resources needed to help uh, ex-prisoners when they come back into communities. I mean, We hear so often from the state that um, you know, the prison population is dropping. So when, how many are we talking about that come to uh, New Haven that need services that you're mentioning, ex-prisoners?
3: Uh, well, the numbers, they, over the last couple of years, And and reviewing and gearing up to uh, go for this particular second chance grant um, that approximately in the city of New Haven a hundred inmates come out uh, per month so that's about 1,200 people per month or excuse me per year that are coming that are coming to the city of New Haven and most of them are New Haven residents and you you do have instances where they're not New Haven residents but as your, uh, your guest previously said you know people whether it's New Haven, Bridgeport, Hartford, or where people just kind of get dropped off. And then without the proper support and resources, more than likely, you know, they're going to end up back in jail. So the numbers may be dropping of people incarcerated, but you still have a constant flow in and out. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it has sort of an equilibrium. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I'm speaking with Earl Bloodworth. He's project manager of the Warren Kimbrough Reentry Project in New Haven. And again, we're talking today about uh, helping ex prisoners get back into society. On the phone with us now is uh, Mayor of the City of Bridgeport, Joe Gannam. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
4: No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's a pleasure to listen to Earl, too.
0: So and I want to congratulate
4: him and, and, and uh, the work that he's doing and the City of New Haven is doing under Mayor Harp.
0: So you have unveiled a, a reentry initiative uh, this past June. Um, most of our Connecticut residents know that um, you're also an ex-offender. So is this something that compelled you to want to help uh, other uh, people who have prison records in your city?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I'd like to think that uh, regardless of, of, uh, of my past, that I'd want to be taking the lead on this as mayor regardless. But I will tell you, it was, I think any, everyone would, would agree. Personal life experiences, good, bad, um, whatever they are, certainly shape us and and, and help us to understand better. Um, if you've been in uh, someone else's, let's just say, shoes or position, um, you certainly can have firsthand knowledge, as I do, how how difficult it can be for anyone um, coming in and trying to do. Let's just call it reentry or reestablishing himself um, back in in their community or possibly in a new community. And just to give you a little personal anecdote, I mean, I I came back to the Bridgeport area with all the benefits that uh, most people don't have: um, large family, um, less less the area needs, financial needs than others, um, education, um, job experience, um, contacts, and yet found resistance, uh, reluctance, and hurdles to overcome um, because of the stigmas attached. To, unfortunately, anyone who um, has gone away uh, for whatever reasons, paid their debt to society, come back and try to reestablish themselves. So, so I get it. I probably, unfortunately, because of my experiences, or fortunately maybe, I get it uh, a little more personally than others. And, you know, we in Bridgeport, you're right, we did kick off um, in June, but we're, we're reannouncing or announcing, I think, the real implementation of uh, the Bridgeport uh, Mayor's initiative on reentry affairs um, this Monday, which I hope will be as comprehensive and holistic as a program that uh, any city can provide.
0: So, Mayor Ganem, tell us specifically what you will—what are you doing in Bridgeport that's going to help ex-prisoners?
4: Well, I got to tell you, I think New Haven is doing a great job, and you know, we've 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 listened and learned a great deal from what they're doing and other cities are doing, um, and we will in so many ways trying to address a lot of the things that uh, that Earl mentioned that are some of the challenges. I mean my first focus was employment. How do we help people get a job? I mean the best thing you can do for anyone if they've got most of their other um, challenges at least addressed is to give them a job because then they can then they're focused, they're able to earn an income, they're able to pay for their housing, they're able to get pay for transportation, support their families if the case may be. But You know, you dig down a little deeper with with people that um, uh, around me, a lot smarter than me. Realize, hey, Joe, wait a minute. Jobs critically important, no question. But so many have mental health issues. I don't mean that they're crazy; just that have mental health challenges, uh, readjusting. uh, They need educational assistance, housing services. Um, So, I think what we're, I know what we're doing now is going to look at a um, comprehensive, we call it holistic approach. To the entire person who's challenged with re-entry coming to Bridgeport. Our numbers are similar to what New Haven has, 1,000, 1,100 individuals on an annual basis. We have about, you could almost say close to 20% of our population could be identified um, technically as ex-offenders. Um, that's probably not unusual for larger cities uh, probably across the country or certainly in Connecticut. So we want to do all that. We've engaged employers. We've got employers to sign up and say, yes, I'll give an ex-offender an opportunity um, through one of the programs that the city is spearheading and coordinating in in conjunction with a number of the already existing services provided through nonprofits and try and really reach out to and give a helping hand to a a, a large segment, as you can see by the percentages, of a population that wants to reintegrate and be a positive part, certainly, of the city of Bridgeport and I'm sure of communities across the country.
0: So specifically in June, um, there was you were going to allocate city money to start up a fund so that it would encourage employers to take a chance on these ex-offenders. And if they work out for a period of one to three months, they then, would they be paying their salaries?
4: Yes. Yeah, since then, uh, there's been the announcement through our, one of our partners, the workplace, uh, uh, the receipt of, of some federal grant money, and there's more on the way. So that amount of money, which was, was more symbolic, uh I don't mean to to minimize its importance, but yes, the the role was look, and, and the part of the program still is, it's called uh, what many would refer to uh, either identical to or part of the step up program, where you say look, give Joe Schmo an opportunity. We've done our assessment, and he's pro- and and he ha- this individual has our support through our program. Give them a job opportunity for a number of weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. And through our program, that salary will be paid. They will not be an employee. They'll almost be a loaned exec or a loaned employee. So the liability or the risk, if you will, on the employer who may be reluctant uh, entering into a kind of a new area uh, will be minimized or eliminated. And what we found and what other committees have found is once that happens, they end up with a valued employee. They say, wait a minute, we want to keep this person. And then from there, they transition on to become a uh, a full employee of that employer. And we've got some 15 and growing list of businesses uh, in the Bridgeport area that have literally signed up to participate in this. And each day that I talk to someone else and I expose them to what we're doing, you hear more employers saying, I'll do that. Not only might it be good for my business, but you know what? I'm giving something back and helping someone out.
0: And what kind of jobs are we talking about?
4: You're talking about any type of jobs. Um, We've had employers that do everything from small manufacturing of cases for uh, musical instruments um, to uh, service providers um, of of just about A to Z. There are some industries that are probably more reluctant, justifiably so, at least on the surface, sometimes financial institutions or those that have a heightened level of, uh, of, of what require background checks that, on its face would cause a red flag for an individual who has a, uh, a a past. So we're trying to work through that end of it, but our, our, our more um, our, our, the greater percentages of the employers are not those type that are just your regular businesses that are throughout the city. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but I could probably read it off to you. Some you might know just because of their their widespread larger businesses and some small that you wouldn't know.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at Connecticut's focus on criminal justice reform. Uh, oftentimes the state's getting a lot of attention on giving uh, ex-offenders a second chance, but it's local communities too that have initiatives uh, such as the city of New Haven and the city of Bridgeport. On the phone with me is Mayor of Bridgeport, Joe Gannam, also Earl Bloodworth, the project manager of the Warren Kimbrough Reentry Project in New Haven. I want to turn back to you, Earl. you had made a point earlier that it's not always about uh, hooking up an ex-offender to a job and how But to get them services um, so that they can really successfully integrate, even counseling. Can you talk specifically about that?
3: Well, yeah. Um, Specifically on the side of New Haven, New Haven actually has two reentry services. I'm with the I'm project manager of the WKRP or Warren Kimball Reentry Project, and we also have the Fresh Start uh, Initiative uh, working here in New Haven as well. So. With the WKRP, what we are focused on are ages between 18 and 24, uh, specifically, and then also from 24 to about 44 who might have a uh, chronic illness or disease. But specifically with the age group of 18 to 24, um, we are focusing on a model from Dr. Latessa uh, out of Ohio, and who also has ties here at the uh, UNH with uh, what's called the R&R model or risk needs and responsivity. and so what that is looking at about eight categories what that might uh, cause a person to recidivate and basically focus on the moderate and high-risk uh, people and the population that might recidivate of ex-offenders and so in looking at that it was found that when you focus on these criminogenic needs or, or risk I should say, actually, for this particular population, for the moderate and high, um, you have a tendency to reduce their risk of recidivism. Um, but what was also found in the studies was that if there is a focus on the low risk, which is kind of what has been going on for years in our country, is a one-size-fits-all. If you focus on the low risk and, and you try to implement some of these therapies and, and uh Different resources towards that particular population, which really doesn't need it, you actually then cause them to recidivate because they are able to manage, uh, like Mary Daniel was saying, once you come out of uh, incarceration and, and if you've been in there for a very long time, that's a, it's, a, it's a completely different world where it's very, very, very structured and you are out in society where you don't necessarily have that similar structure. And then you also have those unmet, unmet needs of you know, mental health or possibly uh trauma from your childhood or in prison and it's 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 basically like dealing with uh, people who have issues of PTSD Mm. and it's untreated so if you don't focus on those underlying issues you know giving somebody a job who can't necessarily cope and manage that responsibility or work within that particular structure then you're not necessarily helping them you're actually setting them up for failure
0: uh, Earl, you mentioned uh, trauma in families. I, you know, I've seen statistics or uh, research done where so often the young people that we, we have in our prison systems, um, you know, they're coming from families where they've had a, a relative in prison. And so it's just the cycle that ke- keeps repeating.
3: Yeah. And it's definitely a cycle that keeps repeating. And not only that, you know, many of the individuals, men and women, that are coming out. Now we're already dealing with trauma, but you're also dealing with uh, deficiency in education. Uh, around literacy and numeracy as well so you're not addressing these needs while they're in and one of the things with the WKRP is that we're trying to start the intake process for p- particular people that would meet the requirements for this program um, at least 9 to 12 months while they are in prison before they get out because starting after they get out or right before they get out you know 60 days or so it's, it's not very helpful Has proven to be effective
0: and Mayor Ganim, I wanted to turn back to you. You know, we were talking earlier about when you got out. Um, obviously, you had resources that other ex-offenders um, may not have. Uh, but at the same time, you're probably used to people who, um, you know, are judging you because of, of of your past. And so, I mean, what did you find worked for you uh, that you could uh, get past that and and know that you know it was time for you to restart your life? And you again were lucky to find a, a back to a, a political career.
4: I think you just got to, um, for everyone, you got to do your own. If, if there's a program like we're offering in Bridgeport, if there's a program like New Haven's offering, take advantage of it. I mean, these are, this is a great contribution of, of smart, committed people, agencies, employers willing to create that opportunity. Um, but you also have to push ahead and really focus on where your strengths are, what challenges you really can or ready to meet when you come out with or without help, and then tackle them one by one. I mean, mine was maybe smaller than others. Um, I had a family, you know, I was a lawyer by trade and had my license when I came back, but I had an office to go to. I had a place to work. I had a place to live. Um, I had a car to drive. Um, Certainly had huge challenges, and many of which I'll spare you on. But um, I mean, but there's, but there's the whole readjustment I think that was just mentioned too. Um, especially if you're long term, as Earl mentioned, if you're away a long time, the world changes, uh, technology changes, friends change, people change, people die, people are born. Uh, you could find yourself coming into a, a whole different world than the one you left, even if everything else is perfect. So what, what we're doing is it's really about helping people make uh, better choices in, in so many ways to help reduce. Uh, I love the term; it sounds like one of those big words: recidivism. In other words, making the same mistakes or ending up back in the same place because they didn't either understand the challenges and were able to meet them, or did understand them but just have, didn't have the resources or strength or support to do it. Because many nobody nobody by choice. Uh, certainly not by good choice. Want to end up on on the, on the back end of the criminal justice system, um, and 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 don't do it for do it for obviously for all the wrong reasons. But usually when they come out, if you give them the opportunity, many people have gotten hit over the head hard enough to realize that um, this is not what they want to do again. So sure, I mean the simple simple time uh, the time warp challenges for me. I'll give you kind of a small antidote and I don't mean to make light of it. But I came out. I was heading back on a bus uh... to connecticut and i was sitting on the bus and someone sat behind me and kept talking i thought they were talking to me i kept turning my head around uh, listening and i realized after about the third time i turned my head around they had a bluetooth in the rear and were talking to their phone well i didn't i didn't know what a bluetooth was i hadn't seen a blue you know did, this was something that kind of developed while i was away we didn't have access to electronics now that's a small little thing but if you multiply you put that out into the real world and you identify ten or twenty or thirty or forty things and the way life has changed, and and those are the easy things to adapt to. The harder things are, are maybe how how skills in the workplace have changed, um, or forget about the reluctance to hire someone because of uh, a criminal conviction on their on their history. It's just the way things have changed, or being away from your skill if you have a skill, or not having your license for your profession if you have a profession. So so the whole host of uh, of, of things that come up. Uh, we want to have a one stop in Bridgeport. We have a lot of great organizations out there. We want to make, it, as I said, a partnership with them, but one-stop where people can come in and um, find this to be a place where they can get back on their feet and um, and be, you know, I don't use the cliche, but a, a contributing member of the community after they've gotten services, after they've been the beneficiary of some services to make that contribution back. So uh, so I'm excited. I'm also excited at a national and state level. But this has really gotten to the level where people have, have turned from, the overriding uh feeling that uh, our criminal justice system was uh was was bent on uh deterrence which which it needs to be a part of but it, but but there's an element that seemed to have gotten lost for decades and that was on rehabilitation and um uh and and that element seems at least to this president i think through the leadership we have in the state of Connecticut i hope on local levels like we're seeing in New Haven and Bridgeport and Hartford um being led to to turn the corner uh of where the real focus needs to be on criminal justice in America.
0: And Mayor Ganem, I get your point about um how uh uh the world moves on when people are serving time, but you know, so much of um when someone gets out, I mean so much of our everyday is just uh, human interaction and how people judge us or have perceptions. And so, do you think that the attention in Connecticut with second second chance and giving people another chance is that message getting through? Because we do, we are hearing from some people in the business community who you know they they don't they want to be able to um, have the the full uh, option to whether who they hire. And so there is a little bit still a little bit of attention there, isn't there?
4: Oh, I, look! I don't think it's a non-issue. But I think the fact that that there's a discussion, that we're having this talk on the radio, that the president's announced second chance, that the governor's announced second chance, that we're putting resources and our best people behind this effort, goes a long way to start changing those that are more reluctant. Um, And I do think that there needs to be – this is not something where you hide the fact that someone uh, has whatever history or past that they have. I don't think that's ever the case, uh, certainly for anyone who's engaging in a relationship, a business relationship or a partnership or an employment relationship. But – I do think the, uh, the opportunity, I'm for ban the box, uh, which means that you know, that resume or that application will get reviewed by everyone else, yet there'll be full disclosure, uh, either at the point or prior to the point of hiring where someone can say, okay, I get that, but we're not going to throw your resume or your application in, the, in, the, in a second pile, which is what happens, whether people want to admit it or not. So, um, so I think that that's the balance and that's kind of the road we're on, I think. Uh, I'd like to think as a society in general Uh, With this type of dialogue, hopefully, you know, in in any small way that I can, having come back uh, through the gauntlet of of public exposure, of running for public office, of getting elected as mayor again to the state's uh, largest city, hopefully that sends a message if I do... Uh, not just through second chance, but if we're able to see someone who's come back through after being through those challenges, people say, "Holy, holy yeah, I guess this, this, this is another example of how this can work in a positive way, and maybe that lends some credibility to someone else who's looking for a second chance.
0: I want to thank Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannem for joining us. Uh, thanks so much, Mayor. Thank you. Also, Earl Bloodworth, project manager of the Warren Kimbrough Reentry Project in New Haven. Uh, thank you so much, Earl, for uh, coming on and telling us a little bit about your project.
3: Uh, Not a problem. happy to do it.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you, Earl. And and we know that the public sector has initiatives to help people get out of prison. But as we've heard, is it too risky for the private sector to want to give ex-cons a second chance? When we come back from the break, we'll hear from one business owner who thinks it's a risk worth taking. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut is among the least religious states in the country, according to the Pew Research Center. But while the number of churchgoers might not be high, religion is a pillar of our state's history. Join us as we explore our Puritan past and find out how that past still influences our communities today. Where We Live been talking about initiatives in Connecticut on a state and local level to end the policies that have fueled mass incarceration in the United States. Ban the box as it's known as one measure municipalities around the country have debated it would prevent job applications from having the question of whether an, an applicant has a criminal record. Ex-inmates say if they check that box, it usually means they have no chance of getting that job. In Connecticut, a new law will be taking effect in 2017 that would ban the box from an, an initial application. Only later, if an employer is set to offer a job to someone, would they be free to inquire about a criminal record. And obviously, that's not um, that limitation is not sitting well with all business owners. There is a local record restaurant owner here in Hartford who's made a point to offer second chances at his establishments. He joins us by phone now. Jamie McDonald is a co-owner of Bear Smokehouse Barbecue in Connecticut. Hi, Jamie. You're on Where We Live. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So we hear that you and your wife um, have been making a real effort um, at your businesses, um, not just in Hartford, but also, I believe, in Windsor to, to hire ex-offenders. You know, where did that uh, thought come from?
2: Um... I think we, well, I know that definitely in our families or just our, our social networks, we all know somebody that has either dealt with or is currently dealing with uh, some type of substance abuse problem. Um, and keeping that in mind, uh, you know, even from my own childhood, I know people make bad choices sometimes. And if they're truly trying to get back on the right track and better their lives, you know, sometimes that's all I need is somebody to reach out a hand and help them up. And without that, there's just a, a continuous cycle of just negativity in their lives.
0: So your success really, your businesses have seen real success in the last few years. Tell us about the people you're hiring. So um, we
2: started off by uh, um, hiring from Billings Forge, which is a local uh, nonprofit kitchen in, in Hartford. And from there, we started establishing partnerships with Different organizations like Open Hearts, uh, which is right down the street from our, our Hartford location, and
0: Jamie, are you there? Looks like your cell phone. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Jamie. Your cell phone cut out. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so they uh, we partnered up with you know, organizations like uh, Open Hearth in, in Hartford, and they kind of know what we're looking for, so they send us applications, and you know, there's. Not much we won't hire for, um, but, you know, if somebody comes in for the interview, they have a good attitude, you know, they they are, like you so said, they're trying to get on the right path and, and better their lives, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give anybody a chance pretty much. Um, and it could be as a dishwasher, it could be as a, uh, you know, one of our line servers, our cooks, um, you know, get their foot in the door, you know, show us that, you know, you're going to be dependable, that you're going to have a good attitude. And, you know, really with us, the sky's the limit. You know, there are no limitations as to, you know, what somebody could do based on their past.
0: And so what have you been seeing in terms of the uh, the ex-offenders that you've been able to hire? Have they all been success stories?
2: Uh, not all, not all. Um, and that's part of the, the risk or the, the, the you know, just the risk of, of, of these types of hiring practices is, you know, we... We either get, get get people that, you know, they come in and they're immediately back out, um, are, are are back in, in jail or prison. Um, we have a kind of another segment that really does well for a while, and like we have, we've had a couple guys that were just absolutely fantastic employees, great people, but they make a bad decision and they're back in. Um, but we have the third segment that is those that are doing well, you know, are great employees, that we're, we continue to give more, more responsibility, they transfer out of the halfway houses, they're now living on their own, and are, you know, productive members of society, you know, and that's really the kind of end goal for us, is helping these folks get on their feet, and letting them know that there are people out there that will help them, despite uh, past indiscretions, I'll say.
0: I'm speaking with Jamie McDonald, co owner of Bear's Smokehouse Barbecue in Connecticut. Uh, Jamie, earlier in the hour, we heard from um, some city officials who have reentry initiatives and um one of them had made the comment that you know it's not always about getting someone that job or making sure they have a roof over their head but you know when you go to prison there you know trauma does happen and it takes time to get over um that experience and tr- and to transition back into society you know what have you been hearing from some of your staff who've you know spent some time um on the inside and and on what they kind of services they need besides uh, that that foot in the door
2: um to your point you know there's uh, you know, prison's not a, a nice place, it's fairly traumatic for, for anyone. And depending on the length that they were incarcerated for, you know, um the gentleman that you just had on was talking about, you know, but there's there's stuff that you know they haven't seen before that, you know, just even from that aspect or, you know, there's mental health issues that, that that have to be dealt with. Um but it's for us it's it's about giving them a, a steady um place to come to work a good environment you know and a lot of guys, a lot of the guys will you know they work they want to work they want to work they'd work every day of the week if i let them because it keeps them busy it, it helps them through that like you said that transition and getting reacclimated to uh, n- normal life
0: what would you say to other business owners who you know might be on the fence about wanting to give someone a chance even if they have a criminal record
2: uh, that I mean the way I look at it, if it was me I'd want the same thing. Um that you know, there are like I said there are risks but they're minimal. Um we've never had any issues at any of our restaurants with employees and you know, any any bad behavior. It's it's more so you 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 a little bit higher turnover, you know, and um they not everybody works out but those that do are the most appreciative, loyal, hardworking employees that we have.
0: We're getting a tweet from a listener who says, uh, Bears has great food, employees, while doing the right thing for community members. Is that the sentiment that you're hearing across the state?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, And it's, um, you know, one of our, both my wife and I's kind of core philosophies is that all communities should benefit from having a business there just as much as the business, business benefits from being in the community. And so, from day one, we've we've tried to always give back as much as we can, um, and you know it's it's part of you know I'm blessed enough to to have some success with the with the restaurants, and you want to share that and help other people out, and you know that's that to us that's the whole point of it.
0: Any criticism? I mean, if, if somebody finds out that um, you know the person that's serving them has a criminal record, have you ever had that experience?
2: Um. Not too much, but I I have, um, and it's more so. Um, we did a we did a interview with uh, Governor Malloy a couple months back, and there was some feedback. Oh, well, you know, why do you offer these people jobs when there's plenty of other people that haven't committed the crime that need jobs also? And my point to them is, is we don't give necessarily any preference to anybody, and I, I think that's the point of it is. is you know, it's, it's basically discrimination against people that have, that have been in prison. So it's not about uh, giving them any preference, it's allowing them to be on equal footing with the rest of the applicants.
0: And how many of your staff would you say uh, do you know that are, um, you know, that have a criminal record?
2: Um, I'd have to say at least 50%. Uh, right now, we 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 have about 100 and about 110 employees. So, say 50, 50 to 60 percent.
0: Well, I want to thank Jamie McDonald again, co-owner of Bear's Smokehouse Barbecue in Connecticut. I appreciate your time.
2: No, thank you very much for having me on.
0: Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Cayon Wolf. WMPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tularsky. As always, you can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.